0: Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the third eye doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Sam. How are you today?
1: Hi, da, hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm good, thank you. How are
0: you Great, great. Um, so, I think we met through uh, social media. and you did? And you had some interesting... Um, posts about you know some sort of internal reflective stuff um how did it all start for you I mean tell us what happened
1: well you are referring to the Instagram page that I have which is called permitted to pause and that is something I imagined um it'll be about five years ago now and it was actually when I was on a career break and the career break had happened quite opportunistically um, because my husband got a job in Montreal in Canada and I had a bit of an internal conflict about not being at work for a year, going out to join him. Um, the decision was based on me being able to go and all of the internal conflict that was about am I allowed to do this? Who's going to stop me? Is it right for me? Is my job gonna be here when I get back? It was very much centered around my work. And like you, I work as a doctor and we have put in the hours, we put in the years. We are devoted to what we do, to our teams, to our patients. And I just realized that I had found it very hard for a very long time to give myself permission about a lot of things. And this opportunity seemed too good to pass up. And what I realized is that it had come at a time when I was getting quite burnt out and I knew something had to change. But I didn't imagine that a career break would be the thing. And I wasn't the one that had um, imagined that I would stop myself. I would take myself off and I would go and do this. And
0: Uh, what were you doing at the time?
1: So I work in dermatology, which a lot of, a lot of doctors probably think is, uh, well, we used to term it derma holiday when I was at medical school. Um, it is a day job, which happens to be very good and very helpful for life and having things outside of life. Um, I work in surgery and dermatology, um, and given everything, it is my perfect job. Um, I have had quite a meandering career uh, with a few different changes for various reasons. Um, I enjoyed everything at medical school. I wanted to do everything. And that left me with thinking, right, the two options for me here is to do everything and not specialize in anything, either general practice or A&E. And I thought that a was gonna be my career choice. And I did a lot of things in the early years even during medical school and then in the early years after that, pointing towards perhaps that career choice. And I was really enthusiastic, as a lot of us are when we're young medics and just spat out of medical school and have all this knowledge and bubbling enthusiasm and motivation and whole life and career ahead. Um, And I even took myself off in my first, no, I'd done my registration year, my first house officer year, thought I was going to quit within about an hour of my first house officer job in London (laughs) thought medical school didn't prepare me for the real life and responsibility of being an actual doctor on the shop floor with a bleep with responsibility I didn't know how to write paracetamol on a drug chart I mean it, it, it prepared us for a lot of things but there were certain realities that I just hadn't been prepared for but that aside it was the Friday morning to Monday night on calls with very very little breaks as a young 20 something I thought, gosh, is this my life? And I had had such a ball at medical school, the tough times and the most brilliant times. Tough times were the exams and brilliant times were absolutely every other part of it for six years. And I was at St. Mary's in Paddington and it was just anyone who's been there. You've been to a London medical school yourself. It's just just an experience. Yeah, it's a buzz.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a buzz.
1: Definitely a buzz. And my lifelong friends now that I've kept with me ever since then. Um, so I, I did my house year and I, I took myself off to South Africa for three months, um, did a job share in my first SHO job year, um, which was pretty unheard of, but I just wanted to do something different. I'd always wanted to travel. I'd always wanted to just do something different and I was, and it was just voluntary and I came back to an a job in London back at St. Mary's, which again was an excellent experience. But I did the job in South Africa and in London. And in combination, I was like, this is not the job for me. <laughs> I, I think I need a life outside of medicine. And I don't think that this is going to give me that. And that was just my, that was my view at the time. But by that time, I had already got myself onto a surgical rotation. So... Um,
0: why, why surgery?
1: Because I'm just much more practical. I would say I'm less academic. I'm yeah. not saying. So- aren't academic, because I know you are as well, <laughs> um, uh, being an eye surgeon um, as well. But I just, for me, I didn't want to sit and graft through general medicine. I just didn't want to do it. Um, and I'd always wanted to take the surgical option if I was going to go through a and And part of my rotation uh, included a six month plastic surgery job at Chelsea and Westminster in London. And that was the last job on my rotation. And I just fell in love with the job. And it was during that time that I did my surgical exam. So I did my MRCS and um, which had overlapped actually from my previous orthopaedic job. And I, I just loved it, but I was still looking at the doctors around me, the incredible eminent surgeons who I was lucky to hold a retractor for, or, or you know, do a bit of suturing sometimes. Um, but also we had a lot of independent stuff to do as well. And I, I just really took to it and I'm quite, um, I would say I'm, I have an artistic side to me as well. Anyone who knows me knows I like making things, I like drawing things, I write a bit of poetry. You know, there, there is this other side. And I think that's in medicine to find something that I could use my hands with and and do. That's really what I really enjoyed. Um,
0: How how, how did you deal with the chauvinistic side of uh sort of surgery, you know, given that, I mean, I presume it's sort of the early 2000s and... London's very competitive and there's lots of, you know, masculine energy going on there. How, how, how did you sort of navigate that that aspect?
1: Well, interestingly, in, in one of my earlier surgical jobs at Kingston Hospital and I was doing general surgery at the time, I did have a very, I would say, very male, very traditional... Um, consultant surgeon I was working under at that time this was ahead of my plastics job and on his team he had two female SHOs so myself and another friend who happened to be at St Mary's before with me um there were two out of three female house officers so our juniors and there was a female registrar so we were quite actually we we'd started infiltrating um that sort of male dominated specialty i think he was quite shocked and overwhelmed and made it known you know fairly openly at times that we were women and <laughs> that you know maybe this might be better done by a man and there was there and i had there was another i mean there were also some some you know, plenty of males around us as well across the different firms and there was a very senior male registrar and I definitely had quite a hard time in being visible to him to get my training done, to get my logbook filled, to get my time in theatre, um, all of that to get my experience um, and often would you know I'd be working away in A&E, trying to get through the number of people and making sure they were seen and planning their surgery, getting their theatre planned, um, and still getting told off at three o'clock in the morning for not working fast enough, when, when we were just trying to manage volume, which was not manageable with the number of people that we were, and, and it, there were definite moments, and, and there was a time at three o'clock in the morning that I'd kind of had my fill of a few months of feeling like I wasn't enough or wasn't doing enough. And he came down from theater essentially to do the usual and say, come on, you're not working quickly enough. I can't work any quicker. And I haven't had no food and I've had no sleep. And it's been 24 hours. Um, And I basically stood there in my in my very tired state and said. Do you know what? I can't do medicine like you. You don't look very happy day to day. It's now three, four o'clock in the morning neither we've just got a job to do and you've got to trust me to do it you know I respect the level you're at I just respect what I respect what you're doing but you've got to let me do this we're doing it as best as we can and ultimately I did say to him at that time morning I don't want your life (laughs) I said I want to be happier than you at three or four o'clock in the morning And I also want to do the best thing by my patients. So I found that actually as a young 20-something, I was already having to stand up for myself in situations that, and that could have, that might've been a female registrar. I mean, I'm not even, it just was a very memorable moment that I have recalled before as to how it sometimes felt to, to, um, you know, to have the hierarchy above you in medicine. But I think that had been leading up from a time where I, was just a bit, a bit sort of left. Um, I don't know to, to find the the logbook filling by myself. I wasn't really helped very much, and that was just one. Ex- you know, that was one situation. I, I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't say that was the rest of my surgical training. I had excellent training with females and males around me, and it, they steered me in all the ways that have helped me in my practice today. But yeah, that is definitely something I came across. And from that day forward, his whole attitude to me completely changed. <laughs> um, how, how?
0: He,
1: he just understood that I was capable. He then said, Oh, Sam, come and do this procedure with me. Sam, I'm at bedside, come and see this. I want to teach you. That had happened with one of my colleagues, but it never happened with me. And I just felt like I was a little bit behind in that um, you know, in that sort of in that need to reach those same targets because I had a limit, as we all do, a limited time to get that training done in the time that we're in those those posts. Um, And then it ended up being quite amicable. So I I sort of didn't fear, I think I feared standing up for myself at times in my earlier years, but there were turning points like that where through no, it wasn't planned, it was simply driven by being tired and hungry and and overworked and a little bit upset, but it just, it made me think, I can say, what I think and what I feel and for better or worse there will be an outcome but I've kind of I've got to say this now and actually it was for the better so yeah I think standing up for ourselves and finding our way in medicine um I think we've all experienced that whether you're male whether you're female I think you know we've all experienced so yeah
0: so I mean the opportunities uh, were there for you the doors are open for you And um, yeah, one has to have the courage to to walk through it, I guess.
1: Yeah, you also have to push a few doors open for yourself. Yeah, Yeah. because there are lots of them that either shut on you, and you just afraid to just try them again, or to take the door handle and see if it's locked or open. Um, And sometimes you may be surprised by what's behind them. Um yeah. Could you give us
0: an example of that sort of in your earlier uh, earlier days in in surgical medicine?:
1: Oh gosh. um Can I give you an example? Probably several. um but I think I think probably for me, it may have been my first change in direction from surgery into what then was general practice that was kind of this this sort of big unknown in front of me. Um, And I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing, because all I knew is that I needed, I needed to change something. I knew that I didn't want to hold a bleep and be on call in a hospital for the rest of my career, because these brilliant, amazing plastic surgeons who I worked with and amongst and who taught me very much. And I and obviously I passed my surgical exams during that time. I'll never forget. But I definitely knew that I couldn't be doing what they were doing in the middle of the night at the age of 60. <laughs> I didn't want to. It's not that I couldn't, of course I could, but would it make me happy? I knew in my mid twenties, it definitely wouldn't. Um, so I remember the conversation I had with my consult, one of my consultant at the time, where I needed to ask him for a reference to go on to the next job after plastics and uh, at the end of my rotation. And that job was to be obstetrics and gynaecology because at that time I could choose a standalone post for six months um, to start building a little portfolio to go towards general practice because I thought that's what I needed to do, to do general practice, to have a bit more of a life. I'd have a day job and I'd have a, a life outside. And that was really, that's always, I think, been really important to me. And I didn't realize how much until the point where I came to a crossroads in my career and I could choose. It was time for me to choose. And those choices that we're accountable for can be really scary. <laughs> um, and because it's it's quite life changing, particularly in medicine, because you pick, you pick a subject, you pick a specialty, uh, or a general specialty, uh, you know, a general um, career choice, and you go down it, don't you? And in our, I say in our day, <laughs> it feels like once you're on it, you're on it. And it was a bit it felt like it would be difficult to come off it so it had to be the right decision and I thought if I go down taking a number if I pursued plastic surgery i still have all of these you know dominant um surgeons around me yes perhaps predominantly male at that time am I still going to have to be doing this kind of trying to get into theatre trying to see this trying to do that do I want that and I just thought do you know I'm, I'm going to make my decision now and of course, I was, conv- I was trying to be convinced by a lot of people around me, my surgical team um, to say, but you've got your exams now. You can fly with this. Thank you. But I'm just going to take them. I'm glad I've done it because I, I've ticked the boxes now that I felt I came here to do. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to go. And I spoke to my consultant at the time and. I just remember holding my breath and saying. I know what I'm doing next I just need your help with me getting my next you know just with a reference for my next job and he said fantastic what's it going to be and I said this is my career plan and this is the job I want next it's obviously any. and he just went general practice I think that's a great idea and I think you need to go for it do what you think and I just felt that support didn't need to be laced with fear but again it was like getting permission I still come back to the permission thing which I know you've talked about before as well but it's I had it at that point and then I just felt strong enough to pursue what I always knew was the right thing so I trotted off and did obs and gynae, and then I did a pediatric job and then I got my registrar job in general practice and then I did my registrar year in general practice and then I swore I would never do another exam again. Um, And again, during my year as a GP registrar, my um, now sadly departed uh, GP trainer, who became a very good friend for the last however many years since then. um, And he taught me how to be a real doctor, I will say that. He taught, in general practice, I just felt I was taught how to be a real doctor, how to really look into patients, how to really see what, what is inside them? What they are really actually asking for? Because they don't necessarily ask for it. <laughs> um, you're looking for. How do you things.
0: mean? How do you mean? Uh, you know, how? you so be a real doctor?
1: Yeah, well, it, it's the it's the hidden agenda. So that's quite a big thing in general practice that is talked about quite a lot. Because patients will come in with a problem, and it will entirely be masking what they really want to talk about so they might come with a physical thing or think it's a physical thing and then it's the exploration it's in a very short space of time as well the skill required by GPs is is really phenomenal in in not only addressing their fear about that problem the physical problem because it might be very real but you dig a little bit deeper with really clever questions and you can you can elicit exactly really what their issue is and there is a lot of mental health that comes into you know psychological issues that come in with <clears throat> into general practice and come with physical problems whereas as a surgeon you're delivered that physical problem and as a surgeon that physical problem is to be fixed and you're the person that has the skill to fix it and that's what you do um, you don't deal with all the other stuff and if I recall back to the early days as a, as a junior in surgery <clears throat> we would do the wall drowns and I'd be the one that trotted back to the hospital bed at the end of the ward and go, did you understand all of that? And who's at home with you? And, and can you cope? And, you know, just ask us any questions, because it felt sadly at that time that perhaps there wasn't enough time for that. And there weren't, you know, that that wasn't being delivered really as part of a holistic, um, you know, a holistic care in, in surgery then. I can only speak for when I was training, obviously I, I, I've i not done it for a long time in that su- setting. Um, but I knew there was something more that I needed with my engagement with people. And I also knew that I preferred patients under local anaesthetic because I could talk to them and they could talk to me. So, I mean, learning with patients under general anaesthetic obviously is, is the business because <laughs> That's a great way to learn without them knowing. But it was, it, you know, it all supervised, obviously. But definitely, I realised all the different facets were starting to come through to me with all of what I thought I wanted to do, the, the practicalities of wanting to do something surgical, um, you know, the general side of sort of A&E versus GP. And I was thinking, how, you know, how do I have a job? that encompasses all of those things. And like I say, in medicine, it's so, it's so boxed in, or it has always been before, before more recent times, I think, as to what each role involves. So um, so essentially, I, my um, GP trainer, if I go back to what you were saying before, he tried to encourage me to take the MRC GP exams, and all of the GP qualifications, and I just said, no way. From the outset, I said, I have done enough exams. I'm, I'm just tired. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I want to learn your, you know, general practice stuff, but I'm going to do that on the job. I've been an apprentice and I'm now going to carry on with the knowledge I have and I'm not doing any more exams. And he sort of said, okay. And he kept asking, okay. And I kept saying no. Okay. And then I became uh, a salary GP and guess what? I still felt I had a box to tick and I did the MRC GP exams. For what? what reason except box ticking I don't know because it was it was stressful as all exams are and I hate exams Hyda I can't I just I hate them um but we all have to do them it's just not my not my favorite thing so it's almost laughable that I did so many exams but I can absolutely tell you I'm never doing another one in my life <laughs> so this was kind of mid 2000s in fact this was I'll tell you exactly it was sort of 2005 and then
0: but I mean why did you tick the box was it was, was it peer pressure supervising pressure or was mm-hmm. it something that you really knew you had to do and yet you were just a stubborn
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there is definitely something in me that is a complete finisher I mean I know that I have been you know found to be that when I've done one of those sort of personality trait things way back when um I say less so now I think you can grow out of being perfectionist and 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 complete finisher but I there was definitely something that felt unfinished Mm. and I felt I'm going to if I'm going to carry on in general practice and I still I was only a salary GP I didn't think I wanted to be a partner but I thought at some point I might need this to get me Mm. to the job I want and I'm going to be up against. That have got it and that probably ended up being the decision maker for me um, and of course it was brilliant to consolidate a whole lot of other knowledge because usually until you do an exam unless you do an exam you, you really um you know that gives you a lot a lot more detail and, and obviously helpful detail with your knowledge but um it definitely wasn't it definitely wasn't my trainer's sort of pressure he definitely he just let me go <laughs> um, And we did talk about it a lot afterwards. And he said, I just knew you'd do it. I knew you would do it in the end. (laughs) Um, And so I kind of, at the time that I was doing general practice training, so when I was in my registrar year, I had actually met a dermatologist who it turned out was to shape my life and my career forever. So as a GP trainee, we go and we sit in for four sessions. Uh, we were sitting in for four sessions with a dermatologist because of the huge number of dermatology cases that come through uh, general practice. And on my first session, she was asking what I did. And I told her, and she said, Oh, could we borrow you? Um, we just need someone to do some minor surgeries and minor ops, whatever that meant. I didn't even know at the time, minor ops once a week. So I then had this perfect little sort of week where I did three days of general practice as a salary doctor and I just did this half day um as a as doing minor surgery in the dermatology department and I had no idea how much local anesthetic surgery was being done I just didn't know it reflected a bit on plastics and it reflected it reflected a bit on surgery with the local anesthetic stuff um and I just thought I've got this perf it's just this is just perfect but as time wore on six months into my general practice salaried job I was beginning to think oh I would like to do more of this dermatology stuff I really like it Um, and general practice has its pressures general practice is hard and any of the stuff that's out there having a go at GPs presently or ever it is a very tough job on so many levels and only GPs now will be able to tell you that but I even know my time just it was very hard leaving things at work there's there's a fair bit of uncertainty you don't have a lot of time with patients you're not a specialist you haven't got access to everything at your fingertips you generally work quite isolated Um, it was very very different to working in a hospital team and I felt the pressures I definitely and I was very due you know I was pretty young in my general practice career and really where the next turn happened in my career was when I developed some chest pain, and this was literally about six months after um, I'd, bec- I'd been a salary GP. I'd just got my MRC GP, so I had passed that in the July. And um, very rapidly, I ended up um, going to hospital and be diagnosed with non Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it presented itself with essentially um, SVC obstruction. So I had a tumor that was about 12 centimeters, I was told that was growing in my chest in my mediastinum and it just, it just within a space of 72 hours had just caused a big obstruction. And I knew something pretty bad was going on. Um, and that really is where my journey with general practice, which had been a very young career in general practice really ended. Um, I had 14 months of treatment, um, which included chemotherapy for the best part of it. It was probably about a year, a stem cell transplant and some radiotherapy. And I came out the other end of it with a very different outlook on life, on work, on medicine, on what I wanted. To be what I wanted to do, and that's a very long uh, monologue of how I've ended up actually where I am today.
0: Tell us, tell us more how it how it changed you. Tell us more.
1: So many ways. I think we've all got a story, haven't we? My story isn't everybody. Everyone's got their own story, and uh, mine just happens to be one that refocused a lot of things for me. So when I talk about how I have felt with, or how I feel I've experienced burnout, I feel I've experienced it in lots of different ways and at different times, and it may be relate, have been related to work, it may have been related to non-work, it may have been related to the two of them just colliding. Um, as life and work does, I say that, they're not mutually exclusive, they overlap one another. And here was a whole period of time, 14 months where I wasn't working, completely would have worked if I could have, but I just, I just physically couldn't. Um, I was asked to be a GP partner in my salaried practice when I was doing that at the time. And I had, I remember having a chat with the, I was called into the GP surgery in between chemotherapy sessions to have a chat about, was I going to apply for the partnership job? And I was just like, I, I just don't know. I'm not really in a place right now that I can really tell you what's going to happen with my health, let alone with my with my work. And so I sort of declined that politely. And I thought, what is going to be will be. We've got the first thing here is I've got to get well. And when I get well, I've got to trust that the decisions in my life and the life path that is meant for me and the things that come to me that I can make a decision about I hope are going to come but we've got one big important thing to do first and that's to get out the other end of this so you just have to let that be and I think so one of the things that I definitely I was forced into thinking really is I can't hurry this along I can't hurry anything about life along I think you know our bodies are very clever things and I think they tell us things and we are very good at ignoring them. And I think that's also the same about our minds. We, you know, we do ignore things that we know are good for us and we just override them. And it just, it just made me realize we shouldn't do that. We can't do that. We've got to listen to our bodies and our minds and just allow, you know, our health to restore do what we're told I mean I had no choice I was out of control and that was another thing I learned the control was completely taken away from me and I think when you when you are in a situation where your life is at threat and your health is in the hands of somebody else and how ironic that it's in the hands of my own profession so I was there on the other side of the hospital bed trying not to be a doctor which I was very good at actually I was definitely definitely was a patient but you just know too much we do know a lot and it just made me understand very much from a patient's point of view how frightening um it can be uh when you don't know anything let alone when you know stuff and how completely At sea, these patients are. They rely on our knowledge, they rely on our expertise, they rely on our discussions, they rely on, you know, on our opinions. What else can they do? Whereas I could question them. I'm a medic. (laughs) And that was that was hard in itself. So it's it was that was a very different perspective for me. So coming back into work, and now I work as a surgeon in dermatology, which essentially became a full-time job after I thankfully got better and that's because the dermatologist I met who's who was still there she had the total belief that I would get back to work she I kept saying I'm really sorry I've got another few months off because I've got to have this this section of my treatment completely understand if you want to you know give someone else the role actually she didn't she just got locums in and got extra hours done she said your role is here you will be back and this job is yours when you're back and that belief just kept me going, really, in what, the knowledge. What,
0: what 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 was the reason for, for having that faith in you?
1: I just think she's a unique, unique individual who maybe, maybe there was a bit of her that thought, actually, she's really valuable for our team. Oh, she's got to come back. <laughs> I like to think that, <laughs> but. I don't know, just as a human, I'm still I know her now very, very well. She will always be a part of my life Um, because I just I would never have even identified that dermatology was a place that I could find my happy place in and do all of the things that I really loved about medicine The patients being awake, the local anaesthetic procedures, me still being surgical and creative, and me being able to talk to patients and understand holistically what they're going through when they're going through a skin cancer, or what they're going through when they're nervous about an operation, or even for something small. It's huge for those people walking in. And I say in medicine, and I sometimes say it to patients who are really anxious and coming to see me, they walk in the door, they've never met me. I'm the person that's about to cut something out of their face. Do you trust someone? Like, how do you get that trust in a in a, in a few minutes of talking to that person who is going to really scar you for life <laughs> um, in the best way you possibly can? So I think it's a huge privilege working with patients. I really do think that. And even more of a privilege to have those sorts of um, dialogues with them when whilst you are doing your work on them. So it really is the most... I just thrive in this job, I really do. But all of that said, when you do too much of something, it can get you. It, it definitely can become a bit less enjoyable. I think if you don't take regular breaks, it can be hard. If you go for long periods and not take annual leave or you know have, have slightly longer breaks, it can be really hard. And on top of that, when you've got, it is responsible, you've got huge responsibilities. All of our jobs in medicine are hugely responsible, whatever facet of medicine we're doing. And that just can mount up. And we don't realize it. We definitely don't realize it. And I think that when um, that, that time before my career break turned up, obviously life is also going on around you. And some of those really difficult life things that that are going on behind you. And of course, I'd had health fears as well. All of this impacts on this person. And that's all we are at the end of the day. We're just a human. And we can only, you know, we can only work with the resources we've got within us in any given day. And sometimes our resources are massive and, you know, we've got full tanks and sometimes they're not. And we have to be a bit more responsible with kind of maintaining our resources and keeping our tanks full. We can't continue to blame it or, or just say, it's because of the, you know this at work, it, it probably is because of this and that at work, but everything in life, I think, and work is negotiable. And if we're not a bit like going back to the, you know, the, the A&E 3 a.m. conversation, if you don't say what matters to you, you will forever be stuck in that situation. And I think we all have the power to change that. So, yeah, if that's a long-winded way to answer your question about how, how things might have changed.
0: Yeah. I love... And, and, and um, I mean, we'll come to sort of, you know, the whole um, career break thing. But, I mean, how about the, sort of the elephant in the room, you know, family dynamics, you know, uh, obviously it's complicated. And, you know, you come from a um, half Lebanese family and that's quite complicated. You know, was that sort of uh, a driving force or a or a hindering force?
1: So most definitely a driving force. Yeah. I would say my family are a huge driving force behind me. Um, I'm actually from 100% Lebanese parents. Just one of the parents is from the northern part of Lebanon and one is from the southern part of Lebanon. So, um, actually, different religions, originally kind of different in religions, but um, you know, full of the most incredible, as you would know being Iraqi, they you know, the, the family centered care and, um, you know, sometimes even so much care <laughs> that you kind of learn to be a bit like that as well, that you become. I want to give so much care. And then it can be a bit sort of, um, I, I get disappointed sometimes when I'm not able physically or otherwise to give so much care that I've always received. But at the same time, we've also got to you know, sort of remain, um, you know, we've got to keep our freedom around us, which I have been given in absolute droves. Yes, I'm a Lebanese female, but I my parents thought very far ahead from myself and my two brothers. Um, to leave Nigeria which is where I was actually born and my older brother was born my younger brother was born in in the UK in the end um, but to bring us away from Africa where both my parents had spent time um, growing up uh, and some of their adult life and actually bring us to the UK and give us the future and an education that staying in Nigeria wouldn't have. Well, what did us.
0: they what, what did they do in Nigeria?
1: So my, you know, my dad did lots of different jobs. They're, my parents are not, they don't have professions. Um, well, they didn't have professions. Uh, my dad did lots of different things and just continued to, to make it happen. He, he just continued somehow to still earn a buck and still get us through school in the UK. And yes, it meant our family was separated. And that has always been a really difficult legacy for all of us. Um, but lots of families are separated. I get that in this day and age as much as in the past. But we sort of lament at the fact there's, it, you know, we never had FaceTime, we didn't have the technology that we have now. You know, to speak to my dad you know, once a month, if we were lucky, on a really bad line through an operator in Nigeria was pretty hard. Um, I remember getting my GCSE results up a mountain in Lebanon when the I'd gone just, my dad had said, you kids are going to go to Lebanon. The war has just subsided. I was 15 um, my older brother was, I think 17 at that time. I think that I was 15. So 17 and my younger brother was, um, was 10. And we just went off with relatives for a week or so and just saw this beautiful, but totally gutted war-torn country when we landed in Beirut. And it was just, it was something we had to see, it was something we had to do. And like I say, it was the very summer, the very week I was getting my GCSE results. And because all the phone lines were down and everything was just a bit destroyed, although we stayed up in the mountains with another relative, we just went up another mountain to the only man who had a working telephone. <laughs> so for me to ring Nigeria, who had rung England to get my results. And that's, the, that's just how it, it was. Um, I mean, I can't speak at you have been in situations I can't even imagine back in your home country. But you know, you know, we're familiar. We understand a little bit about how you how you see that and how you see the privileged life here when you yeah. have seen the other. Um so yeah, I have a lot to be grateful for for what our parents did for us and still do now, but um I would also say that the work ethic in my, in both my parents' sides of the family is phenomenal. I, I've had, I've been lucky to have longevity in grandparents but who have long passed now, but most of them worked till they, in the 80s. So, and my mom is 71, she's still working. <laughs> um, you know, she teaches things as a foreign language, dad is retired now, but it's just, yeah, that definitely has been a really strong thing that's come through to myself and both my brothers.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, for 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 us taking time off and holidays actually um, antithetical to our way of life. <laughs> you know, it's literally work nonstop until until yeah, you can't do it anymore. So taking time off is actually a, a very big challenge.
1: Yeah, and that's where the challenges with permission come. And it's not aren't saying you know how many times the family say you need a break, have a week off. You know, stop, you're working too hard. This, that, the other. But there is something ingrained, isn't there? There's just something that doesn't enable you. And I'm not even saying that's the sole reason behind not having, you know, being able to give yourself permission. But I've, I've written a couple of um, articles before now. And I say there's all these intrinsic and, and extrinsic things that lead to our ability to give ourselves permission. We're constantly looking for permission from others. I think in a lot of what all of us do every day, we want um, validation for things, we want um, not necessarily recognition for things, but you just want to be told it's okay. And, you know, I, I just think that there's so many things that we don't understand about the footprints that have been left in our, in our lives and, and all of the different things that have happened to us in our lives that impact upon that ability. And it's something so important i don't know how much people really think about it in themselves that they're burning out because they're not allowing themselves x y or z that they're not asking somebody else for that thing because they're too afraid to express that or you know it might be a negative outcome if they show vulnerability actually that's all rubbish we've absolutely got to if we don't dig deep and understand what it is we need who we are, why we need it, why we need this change. We just carry on. So, and, and then we burn out or, or worse, you know, it does, it definitely affects all of us. So I think we've just got to be a bit more open with ourselves and open about having conversations with ourselves and other people. Um, so that permission isn't stigmatized. It's allowed. It's just not, it, it's, you know, it's not Against the rules or against <laughs> against the law, ask for it. The worst thing is you, it gets turned down. Yeah, ask for yeah. The and, thing-
0: and then you'll know a bit more about yourself in the process. You know exactly. when. Exactly. Is 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 there anything negative um, about coming from a Lebanese heritage which you wish you didn't have?
1: oh. I immediately want to say no. <laughs> it's again it's a privilege. It's a privilege to to have another culture that I have grown
0: negative, up. Negative, negative. I don't I, want the positives. I... <laughs> you you can't be negative, is it? I guess that's a negative.
1: <laughs> well I'm really disappointed that my household didn't speak Arabic when I was younger. <laughs> I heard Arabic all the time so I did understand it and I'm just trying to teach myself it again which is nice but um anything negative um the voices can be quite loud (laughs) that's definitely something and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a negative anger but I had to learn that quite a lot growing up and even as an adult now if I hear those loud voices it makes me a bit anxious you know i've got to remember i you know and my personality is probably is probably quieter than an average <laughs> you know Lebanon. i have fire in my belly oh yes but i kind of i i'm definitely a bit more reserved as a personality and i think i've learned i've really learned to be a bit more confident and i don't always have that i think yeah so sometimes maybe being lebanese is a bit bigger than me <laughs>
0: yeah 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 i mean certainly you know in the um iraqi heritage it's very loud and brash and and arrogant and and boisterous and and um yeah overwhelming it's quite overwhelming but that's just the way they are you know it's nothing you know yeah. you know it's not some kind of massive ego trip and um yeah just some sort of power grab or whatever um it, it's just loud and bo- uh, boisterous and 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 intrusive that's something that that um yeah pissed me off a lot it's very intrusive people will know about everything about everything in your whole life and yeah
1: Can um have I- to so that's another thing really that almost ties in a bit with what we're saying as well is the boundaries. So sometimes just forming those boundaries without feeling that you're upsetting somebody. And I still haven't quite mastered that because I do definitely still feel that sometimes if I'm creating a boundary, I know why I'm doing it. And I know that, or I might think I know I need to do it. And I'm not just saying with family, it's even, you know, at work or outside of that, there's definitely something in me that feels I'm offending and I'm, I know I'm not and it may not be as well as, as badly received as I think it will be so again it's sort of pushing your own boundaries to explore that a little bit and being authentic and honest about
0: yeah it's a difficult one I mean yeah. you know the other day uh, you know I had an argument with one of the nurses and and um you know and then it was done and then uh, and then we we literally hugged and kissed and made up and and someone else sort of came in while we were sort of you know not not totally smooching but we were sort of doing that kind of you know physical embrace and so on um and they were quite shocked about it you know they thought you know bloody hell what's going on here um but that's a very kind of mediterranean middle eastern in your face yeah uh, <laughs> sort of, vi- yeah, visceral, visceral approach, which um, you know can be shocking for some, but for us, it's very much part and parcel of of how we conduct life. I mean, we sound very English and posh here, but you know, really, we're not. I you
1: know. <laughs> oh, no. You know, I wouldn't have it any other way either. I wouldn't. I wouldn't.
0: So you know, boundaries is quite difficult because sometimes patients come to me and I say something, and then looking back. I should have yeah. really made the boundaries quite clear, you know, and um, being much more, um, what's the word, uh, gentler and sort of more clearer about about these things because they can take it quite, uh, quite the wrong way, really. Um, but you know, I've I've definitely improved. I've definitely yeah. improved for sure.
1: But you see, again, I I think I go back to my general practice training as much as you know we're all different personalities as well we can't you know medicine is made up of so many different characters thank goodness one thing that I've always really been interested in when I think about is how certain specialties find certain people or how certain people find certain specialities. and you definitely you know you could look at sort of 10 different people and go right you'd be suited to that just by personality it's just insane how some medical specialties kind of emanate a certain, you know, a certain type, if you like, which of course it shouldn't, and it shouldn't need to do that. And everybody should fit in into any specialty, no matter what. But I still think there's something about personality that can manage or cope or enjoy, thrive, not enjoy, you know, and sometimes we have to do it to understand, again, what where we belong in that. Do we belong in that? And that's why I think that whole um, like conveyor belt that seems that we all seem to get on in medicine. We get fearful of jumping off it either because of being seen to not cope with it or, you know, be doing well in it or you're weak to not carry on with it. Of course, it's none of those things. But actually, we need to be strong enough to say I've tried it. And you know what? I'm going to be better doing something else. And now I know that. And if I don't try it, how am I going to know? And now another perspective I've had really over the years and all the different changes I've had in my career, um, you know, some of which have happened by accident and some of which have happened by choice, is that it really is okay to change. We don't have to be married to that career choice anymore. And portfolio careers are, you know, I definitely fly the flag for that. And I think it's really healthy. I think it's really healthy to have outside interests, to make time for those other things. we work so much of our lives that if we don't enjoy it, and you've said before, I've seen your interview with Elliot Reed, Reeve. Um, you, you know, you need to do your passion. So you've got to combine your passion with also good knowledge and ability, and also balancing that with other stuff that you are passionate about that may or may not be at work. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think it's okay to change and I don't think anything bad happens about you know happens to you about with that I think we can we can still learn about ourselves and still develop ourselves in a role even if it's a new one
0: yeah yeah I mean I think you know one of the major causes for burnout is a lack of change so you know that's that's the reason why a lot of people burn out is because they don't change and you know change is actually um, a normal process of both our thinking and of, of our body you know there's a constant uh, uh, cycle of, of, of accommodation and assimilation so um, if you don't change then there's a problem going on I mean I kind of disagree with you in terms of specialty I think specialty attracts the personality and I don't think uh, specialties should accommodate to different personalities so you know if you're going to be the consultant plastic surgeon in a teaching hospital that attracts a certain kind of personality and the plastic consultant in a in a general hospital attracts a certain kind of personality um and a uh, con, you know consultant plastic surgeon in the community attracts a certain kind of personality so i think um yeah it's sort of attracts different role uh, you know different personalities but for us to kind of accommodate all personalities in a plastics teaching hospital <laughs> I think we'll kind of uh, lose the plot there I think uh, you know this whole sort of notion about including everyone in I don't really think that's um, uh, what's the word it, it, it's not practical and and It doesn't, it's not sustainable, I don't think. It's not sustainable.
1: But I think with, I think you're right in that is what happens. That is definitely, but I also think that to not deny someone the opportunity, but for someone to then be fearful of opening that door because they No, no, for sure.
0: I mean, opportunities definitely, you know, allow for opportunities in all different uh, walks of life and all levels of society uh, and all levels of, um uh class and and ethnicity for sure um but you still need this you know the specific kind of qualities in that particular role um you know a politicians a politicians a politician so uh, yeah, yeah, you know you, you know you, you know you still have to speak like a politician dress like a politician and act like a politician
1: well that that comes with expectation then so what that role says is the expectation that everyone then continues to have of what that role should be. And that may be why it then doesn't attract, you know, different people of different personalities and different walks of life. And so therefore, for me, I'm disagreeing with you again, as well, like on the back of that, because the more expectation that's put upon to be an orthopedic surgeon, you need to be a male rugby player, you know, of a certain weight and a certain height and strength, no. I mean, I I have... Um...
0: Yeah, but that's broken down. I mean, you know, that's not the case anymore. You know, to be an orthopedic surgeon, <laughs> you need to be a great surgeon, a great communicator, great with your hands, great team player, and have that sort of mind-body balance of uh, providing great artistic and academic expertise in this situation. You know, that's very much to do with qualities of the human rather than you know, those expectations of being a male rugby player and so on. In those days, that was the case, you know, 30 years ago, because, you know, we didn't have enough access to different resources of of human beings. So, you know, this is constantly changing, which I agree, you know, uh, and the dialogue is, is, is present, which is great, which is what it's about, you know, having that sort of dialogue. Um, expectations is necessary to start the dialogue. Um, but after that, you know, it does. And, you know, th- th- there is this notion that, and I think uh, Carl Jung um, talked about it, is that we don't have ideas, but ideas have us. So we don't have specialties, specialties have us. You know, I'm, I'm sort of extending that analogy. Um, I mean, I'm in a kind of hybrid situation where, you know, um I'm an ophthalmologist, but I happen to work in the community, but at the same time I have a leadership role um in that um in that position and at the same time um have an influential, you know, um social role as well. Um and I think those roles have attracted me because of my qualities or personality I think that's the point I'm making
1: yes but also you have perhaps steered yourself towards some of those roles organically I'm not
0: sure I'm not sure I'm not sure I think it's just (laughs) it's just happened to me
1: (laughs) well good I don't know
0: I don't know I don't know I mean you know that's what I'm saying it's like I'm not sure. Is it me or is it something else that's attracted me? And, you know, I mean, I'm a fan of phenomenology and, you know, the whole philosophical aspect of that is that, you know, things shine forth and we are attracted by that shining. Yeah. You know, And what's the essence? Is it sort of us that perceive the shining or is it the shining that shine forth for us to go towards, which is beyond our... Uh, mental and uh, logical recognition so you know that's the kind of
1: yeah who actually knows but
0: <laughs> well I don't know
1: so... <laughs> yeah, we've, got we'll... opportunities, we've got to find them and we've also got to just believe in our journey I really do think that that sounds really um, naff but <laughs> I do think we have to believe in ourselves and what is there for us and
0: well you know faith is necessary at the end of the day I mean you know what in any endeavor, you know, we we undertake, we have to have faith. And 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 faith is, is is about trust, is we put trust into people that we've had um mutual experiences with. You know, marriage is a great example, you know. You know, we don't know the total ins and outs of our partners, but we have faith that being together is is beneficial, just like your your dermatology colleague had faith in you to.
1: Yeah.
0: you know, to come back and uh, do a wonderful job.
1: No, oh, well, I definitely, I'm grateful to her and grateful for where I am now and, um, yeah, and... We so, know-
0: I mean, you know, I mean, we didn't get past sort of, you know, our first question about, you know, uh, taking the plunge and going to Montreal.
1: I know. <laughs> well, I'm keep brief, but um, it was, yeah, I took the plunge and I was really totally supported by my team to do that i mean my husband works in um premiership football and you know we talk about burnout we talk about in medicine that's what we know and it's so well versed isn't it? it's talked about thank goodness which we're all grateful for but there are other professions that are crazy there are professions that do not you know they're 24 7 working they're seven days a week not dissimilar to medicine um and the pressures are are huge and you know I watch my husband who you know is here there and everywhere in Europe in the UK weekends just is continuous and you know medicine all I'm guess I'm saying there is medicine isn't the only thing but it did it was his job that took that he got offered in Montreal and um because my team was so used to me knocking on the door of my clinical lead when my husband was working in Cardiff and he was working in Manchester and he was, you know, in various places, I would knock on the door and go, okay, can I change my job plan again? Because my husband's moving again. Um, and I just stayed where I was. I kept my job. I felt, you know, that's what I wanted to do and needed to do. And so on this occasion, I knocked my clinical lead, which was, I remember her washing her hands at the sink. I went, hi. And she said, where is it now, Sam? <laughs> so she kind of knew there was another change coming. And I said, well, this time is Montreal, Canada. And I was kind of going to her for the first bit of permission <laughs> because I just didn't know what it looked like for me. And I just needed the reassurance that it would still be okay for me to come back. And she just straight away said, just go. These opportunities do not come up very often. Your job will still be here when you get back don't take it as a sabbatical because you're expected to be coming back with something to show for it go and take it as a career break and that was the beginning of me accepting that this could be a real thing and the thing that I didn't know would be my career saver in terms of myself how I felt to to continue thriving and doing what I love doing but I just got a bit tired because lots was going on around me outside of work as well and I knew something had to change and this was it. So really, it was it was scary. It was scary to just down tools, literally, and go. It was the best thing I ever did. And I definitely advocate career breaks to anyone who can do them. And I've written a BMJ article after, I, after uh, in fact, while I was in Montreal, to say we shouldn't fear career breaks. And in fact, in the way that Australia does it with their medics, They have a certain number of years of working and they factor in a career break for them. And I've heard this since writing that article that people have said to me, we really should do something here to make it allowed that people don't feel a stigma that it's it's actually beneficial to just do something different and that it's okay to do it. And it doesn't have to be a year. It doesn't have to be nine months. It could be like one month every year that you're just enabled to have it. Because annual leave sometimes just isn't enough. (laughs) And in between all of that, you've got your appraisals and your CPD and, you know, work and life. And just sometimes you want to stop because all we do is keep going. And with huge responsibilities that we have, as I said before, it just it can mount up and we don't recognize that that's happening. And, you know, maternity leave is so well documented. It's done so well and there is planning for it. It's far worse for somebody to suddenly stop work and take a break because of stress, because there's no planning involved in that for anybody either side of it. Whereas actually, if you just said, okay, you know, I don't have children, but I'm not saying return to leave as a holiday, absolutely not. But what I am saying is though we could do it the same way and that's for men, for women, for anybody and just make this pathway through our, our careers just better. And allow for longevity and good mental health
0: and um, i mean we'll put a um a link to the uh, bmj article uh in the notes so um hopefully people can look at that and yeah. and and have a think um how, how how did it what what were the three things that sort of uh, uh how did it change you um having that career break
1: A, it gave me the insight that I could give myself permission and that I could be the one to make that decision about a career break if I got to that point again in the future, that I shouldn't fear the outcomes of of just coming, you know, just stopping for a little bit. So the second thing I would say is it definitely consolidated my understanding of better balance. I don't think Ever get to the perfect life work balance but understanding what feeling more balanced actually is and what I personally need to do in my life to to do that and that has been reducing sessions giving myself a bit of space in the week doing stuff outside of work all those things that might be exercise that might be music that might be you know anything friends family you've got to make time for those things because time doesn't just get dumped in front of you Uh, with an unlimited sort of resource it's something you have to use wisely Uh, and the other thing I would say I think the reflection on my health and my illness and what that meant to me because I came straight back to work immediately I was still I was still quite ill but I just know I needed to come back to work and, and i have patients i see even now who say i remember when you came when i when you saw me back in 2007 and you had a headscarf on didn't have to tell them anything about that but they remember that and there you know the, the sort of the beauty of and the, the blessing of survival actually that i have and therefore i can um, take with me In every day that I treat patients who might be having the same worries or concerns. So reflecting on all of that and feeling very privileged and blessed to be here, but understanding that life is still not perfect, even when you've survived cancer. And that's okay because dealing with the crap things in life as well just tells you you're alive as much as the good things do. (laughs) So, yeah, that would be probably my. My three things and a few. more. (laughs)
0: <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you and really moving.
1: Thank you, Hider. I feel like I've talked a lot. I just wanted to chew your. Ears. It's been so lovely and very easy to talk to you. So grateful and honoured to have had time with you. Well,
0: Thank I you. mean, you know, the honour is mine, and, and and for our listeners, um, how how's best for people to contact you? What's the what's the best way?
1: So. Pretty much the only social media thing I do because I'm such a for is my um, permitted to pause Instagram is um, at permitted to pause, um, and I do have a website which I am in the throes of updating. But it's www.permittedtopause.co.uk which has a few other things that I've done and uh, things I've talked about and articles I've written, and um, just I keep going with it really.
0: And um, and 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 mention the, um, the charity that you're working with and and supporting.
1: So off the back of it during the lockdown, I just, um, I made a few little, little products. I made some um, postcards, which were sort of rainbow NHS postcards, and I made some care boxes actually, which I was um, just selling at the time. And I contacted the, uh, the wonderful Claire Gerada at the time, who pointed me in the direction of this new charity, Doctors in Distress, who are just amazing and run by well it was started by uh, an incredible guy called Amanda Sidhu who very sadly lost his brother to uh, suicide and he was uh, a cardiologist and uh, with hidden mental health issues and I was just raising a bit of money off the back of selling a few products and then from that um, I've just really just been advocating them and just doing a bit when I can for them and running a little bit in may to raise money for them and they do great work and they are really so you can you can find them on instagram as well at, at um i think if you look up doctors in distress you, you will find them um, they just have really good stuff for medics um and all the healthcare professionals really supporting them through difficult times so yeah also worth a, a look
0: great thank you so much sam
1: thank you ever so much Hyda. you take care